What's good, everybody? This episode of the podcast is sponsored by DistroKid. They are the go-to for digital music distribution and the easiest way for musicians to get your music onto Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, TikTok, YouTube, and more. They offer unlimited uploads, and artists keep 100% of their earnings in stores 10 to 20 times faster than any other distributor. Fastest payouts. They help out with automatic splits, cover song clearance, and all kinds of other amazing tools and templates to help you get the most visibility for your releases. I dig this company and really appreciate their business model that offers more features than any other distributor at the most affordable price possible for solo musicians, bands, studio artists, DJs, and any other creators that are producing music in their home. And they also offer label services as well. They're distributing over a third of the world's digital music at this point. And the best part about DistroKid sponsoring the podcast is that they are offering Dan Cable Presents listeners 30% off your first year of membership, making their already affordable services even cheaper. Check out the link in the episode notes. I will also put it in my Instagram bio in the link tree. Click that link and it will give you 30% off your first year of service. Super stoked to have DistroKid sponsoring the podcast and can't thank them enough for their support of this thing. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Produce Row Cafe in Portland, Oregon. This spot offers free live music every Thursday night throughout the summer from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. and Sunday brunch tunes from noon to 2 p.m. with DJs spinning vinyl. Lots of dance parties both day and night are on the summer calendar as well, featuring events from Global Based and other promoters. They are located in inner southeast Portland, and aside from offering free music every week on their patio, they've got a killer brunch menu on Saturdays and Sundays. The Migas and the breakfast sandwich are lights out, and the lunch and dinner menu doesn't slack either. Come through and check out some tunes over there at Produce Row Cafe, as well as their new summer seasonal cocktail menu. This is a great spot to grab some food and some drinks and enjoy some tunes with friends or family. Appreciate Produce Row being a supporter of the podcast and the local Portland music community. Now let's start the show. What is happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Day Cable Presents podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the program once again. If this is your first time listening, thanks for checking out the show. You can find fresh episodes coming at you every Tuesday. And if you want to help support this thing in a free way, you can do so by clicking subscribe on iTunes, clicking write a review, giving the podcast five stars if you feel like it is deserving of so. That'll help propel this thing into the tops of those iTunes charts, keep it in the conversation, and uh, it'll help strangers find it. Cannot stress the importance of those. I wish they weren't so important so I didn't have to talk about how important they are during uh, the intro of every episode. But uh, yeah, 
If you're uh, not listening on Apple, just like, follow, subscribe wherever you are listening from. Tell a friend about the podcast. Share it with somebody. Check out the monthly playlist that I've been putting out every first of the month. Just drop the September one there. It's pretty spread out genre-wise and usually just a a glimpse of uh, things I'm playing in my DJ sets or uh, just some new music that I'm listening for. If you're uh, looking in for something that's a little more genre-driven, those are uh, those are there for you too. If you're just trying to stay in one lane, but the the links for those things will be in the episode notes. Excited to uh, get into this one, episode 324. Vanport is on the podcast. He's a Portland-based DJ producer artist and someone that i've known about for uh quite some time i've known the name van port within the portland music scene and it was uh really nice to finally have an opportunity to hang with this dude he's uh such a killer dj and he's also uh you know diving into some music productions of his own now which i'm eager to hear more of because his ear for mixes and the way he blends things i i just uh think are very dope and he's got a bunch of mixes on soundcloud that you can check out to uh get some reference for what he does with his sets and those links will also be in the episode notes but really enjoyed just getting to hear about his thought process behind the art and uh for life in general, I think it's helpful in framing where the music is coming from, and I just appreciated a lot of what he had to say. So I'm stoked to share this one with you. Vanport is DJing regularly around the city and elsewhere, so definitely give him a follow so you can keep up with his events. I know he's got some regular residencies over at Haylove and North 45, so definitely go check him out sometime. If you're new to the cast and you dig what you hear, go back and check out some previous episodes, diving into the Portland, Oregon scene, as well as uh, talking to musicians from all over the nation and sometimes internationally as well. If uh, you want to check out some other local chats i'd recommend hitting the uh the recent yuck god chat or someone else in the in the beat scene love jones is mentioned in this episode check out his episode uh Meltzer was uh on not too long ago but uh yeah lots to catch up on if you are uh if you're new to what is going on here and uh there's going to be a couple of beat happening events going on at Produce Row these next couple months. The first one is September 25th, and the other one is October 23rd. If you were at the the five-year anniversary of beat happening, it was a, a killer party hosted by Love Jones and Freed Tillman. So many, uh, so many great artists played so much good music that day. So uh, more of that is coming at you, similar style party. Those are going to be 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. So September 25th and October 23rd, a beat happening over at Produce Row. Come through for those. And uh, this is Van Port and I chatting it up on his porch. As I mentioned before, he's been uh, working on some productions of his own, and uh, he was kind enough to hit me with a couple unreleased tracks to uh, tease for the episode. So we're going to kick things off with one called For the Love of House. And then we'll play the episode out with Serene Oak. Vanport is on the show. Let's do the damn thing.
it's sounding good. Mm-hmm. All right, man, you ready to to finally do this thing? Finally I'm jumping time. on the mics. <laughs> finally. <laughs> finally making it happen, but uh, I'm excited to to chat with you. I feel like you and I have like a lot of mutual homies and see each other from time to time at some different venues but we've never really like had the opportunity to just like sit and talk about shit so i don't even like know too much about you except that's real. you seem to be like bouncing back between atlanta a lot a lot and uh i know that's that's where you came to portland from initially no i'm from here are you okay see yeah. i don't know anything yeah no <laughs> uh i mean so my dj name is vanport without the vows and that came about um for a multitude of reasons but um you know i was born in portland um i moved to atlanta in 96 okay so i think that was like first grade or something like that and i would go back and forth between atlanta and portland um and then i would say ninth grade my mom was like all right it's time for you to live with your dad and so i went to florida and uh i think second half of sophomore year i went back to atlanta and then i finished uh junior and senior year in portland and since then i've been in portland um but recently um i went to my auntie star's wedding in atlanta and i was like my first time in atlanta in like 10 years or so and i told myself that i would go back there more frequently and it just turned out that there was a job opportunity in which i have been bouncing back and forth every month since then so manifestation is real (laughs) and was uh has music always been just a constant for you like what do you like how early do you remember kind of like developing an interest in either just like listening collecting or actually playing music in some form um oh shit well i guess my introduction to music i guess is you know in the womb you hear shit you know, I was brought up by my mom and my grandparents um, on both sides. And so I heard a lot of different variations of music. Um, and, you know, my mom had me at 15. So um, I was, you know, hearing Earth, Wind and & Fire and all this type of stuff, but also like, you know, hearing Tupac and stuff. Like, it was like, you know, a lot of my friends act like, or tell me I'm old, like I have an old soul, but it's like, I grew up seeing my mom experience life in her 20s when I was, you know, eight or six or whatever. Um, But I remember my mom would always be a hustler and just, like, be running errands all the time, and I'd be in the car. I remember uh, we lived in Seattle um, before we went to Atlanta, and so um, she would be running errands, and I would just be fucking around with the radio stations, and that's when I fell in love with rock music, but that was kind of like a closeted thing, right, you know? So, like, when my mom comes back in the car, I'll just switch it back or whatever. <laughs> so, I mean, shit, I was probably, like, in pre-K when I was really, like, you know, I think uh, Nirvana came on, and I was kind of like, oh, snap. Like, what is this? And um, I think it was uh, Teen Spirit for sure. And then, you know, I watched a lot of MTV and stuff. So, um, and I remember when I got older, uh, probably, like, eight years old or something, um, my grandma Linda here in Portland would get the Columbia House music shit. And so, you know, they'll sell it to you by saying, you can get 20 CDs for 99 cents. <laughs> yeah, and then absolutely. after that, they keep sending you CDs. And if you don't <laughs> send it back, they just charge you. And like, they already have your credit card on file. But I remember, like, you know, 
Jamiroquai CD would come in and I'd be like, Grandma, can I keep this? And she'll like, let me keep it. So I was like listening to Jamiroquai at a very young age. Um, to this day, I'm trying to find records by them. And that's really hard to find. Yeah. yeah. But so I guess all my life, but actively like digging, digging, um, six ish years old. Did you always feel like you, there was like a lot of people around you that were putting you on to different types of music, whether, whether they like consciously knew that or. Oh yeah. I mean, my dad loved listening to seal and shit. I feel like my dad was always open to like alternative music styles of music. Um, I think just life in general put me on a shit. I was always the person that, you know, if my mom had me at the mall and I'm sitting there while she's like shopping, you know, and as a kid, you don't want to sit in the mall. Yeah. If a song came on, like I'll go to the counter and ask the person like, what song is this? And like, write it down. So I think, yeah, everywhere I'm influenced by music. I think the more I got into like doing music myself or DJing, the less I've seeked it out to be honest really when it turned into a job but i've um started to regain a passion into doing it again yeah but you always like the kid that had like a disc man on them or like a yes. tape player on them yes it sounds like the, we're on the we're around the yo, same age <laughs> i had the um yeah and i probably in my lifetime went through like a hundred headphones like yeah i think at least two or three times a year i'll get new headphones um whether it's because i blew them shits out or the the cord would would short out um i flew a lot as a kid too so it was like you know my grandma pro who helped raise me my dad's mom rest in peace and my grandpa fat both of them passed away they live in picking mississippi um that's where both sides of my family's from that's where my mom met my dad um so i was conceived there and born in in portland but um so i would fly there every summer my dad lived in Florida, so I would go visit him in the summer. So it's kind of like I wouldn't see him that often, but, you know, you had that, um, you know, that two weeks of, oh, we're going to go to Universal Studios and Disney World and all that type of stuff, you know. So when I would fly around, like I would get like the, you know, the chaperone or whatever that would take me around. And I would just have my headphones all the time. My dad used to complain because he'd be like in the car trying to talk to us and I'd be in the far back of the We had a van. I would just have my <laughs> headphones on. He would get mad because I didn't hear what he was saying. And it's just like, let me do me. I don't want to listen to what you listen to right now in the car. Right. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I was uh, I was often just in the back with the, the headphones on. Right. You know, it's just like I would like to. I think at an early age, I developed, a, you know, a need or a want to be listening to the things I wanted to be listening to. Even though I was like a lot into a lot of the stuff that my parents were playing in the car, too. And. I feel like luckily they were also pretty open even mm -hmm. at a young age to me to let me listen to what I wanted to listen to in the car. Like they would give me that opportunity, Yo. which is I think really, really cool, especially <laughs> like, I don't know. I just remember my dad like really like letting me listen to anything, especially in high school. If we were on the way to my hockey games, he would let me pick the music. Like I think he understood that that was like part of the thing for me. And I think he also appreciated some of the stuff I was playing, but he was, you know, I just like remember playing a lot of stuff, even off like the chronic 2000. And he was just like, he was into it. Like he knew, <laughs> he knew some of the, the songs like by, you know, after a few months. That made me think about, so my grandpa Clyde, who lives up here, um, my first concert ever was Eiffel 65 in fifth grade. 
you know, the I'm blue and I'm a yeah. D. Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting is like that song was very like, you know, pop or was it called like kids boppy, right? Yeah. But like the album itself was actually a really good album in my opinion when it comes to electronic music. Like you know, and it was like their only album that was in English to the point where I would go and I would, you know, with, with torrenting and stuff, I would like go to foreign sites and try to translate the stuff. And like, I started listening to their other albums that was in French. I didn't know what the hell they were saying, but it sounded good. But uh, yeah, it was at Roseland. And I just remember when we would pick up my grandma from work, she worked at Wells Fargo. Uh, he would let me play that in the car. And so it was one of those things where it's like, you know, that wasn't his cup of tea, but he could, he, he would say like, you know, I can appreciate what they're doing. Like I could tell they're good in their own like, right. at what they do to the point where he took me to the show and enjoyed it because I enjoyed it. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's like important to have those moments. I don't know. My parents took me to like some concerts at a really young age because they like picked up that I was singing along to what they were listening to. Like what shows took, were that? Uh, Phil Collins is oh, still look. like my dad. Okay. That, and that's like my <laughs> top musician still. Like that's one of the ones that's like stuck with me. But my dad showed me some shit like off of a Phil Collins live album. I remember being very young. I couldn't have been more than seven or eight. And I remember him showing me like a specific part in a song. And I think that that was like pretty impactful to me to just like pick apart a song and like find a piece that I was just like, oh dang, like this was like a crazy drum fill that happened. And uh, they took me to do a show. I was, I was five. And then they took me when I was eight to see him again. And like, I don't know, that shit hit really heavy. I think yeah. like it just kind of blew my mind open to like see that. What do you what do you remember about the first time you like saw someone play live music that it felt like a little more tangible aside from like that big show that you went to at a young age? Do you mean tangible as far as like, oh, I can do this, too? Or what do you mean? Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, maybe someone that made you like feel like you wanted to do the thing or made you feel like you could, I guess. Well, f the first part, wanted to. Um, I feel like just listening to music in general, I always feel like I wanted to. I always would hear a song and be like, you know, if they did it like this, this would be even better. Or like, you know, on a, comp a composing type lens. But as a DJ, I think the first time I was like, oh, I could really do this was because um, I used to want to DJ when I was younger. Like I've always was eager to do it. But back then it was like, you know, to ask your family to invest in that would be like, get it, turntables, get a mixer. It was more expensive prior to like being able to do a digital DJ controller. So that never happened. And then when I got older, there was uh, the homie uh, Nick used to go by Gang Signs. He now goes by uh, Ballads. Um, he used to have a um, like a monthly series at Holocene with the homie Conrad called uh, Verified. So he would bring like electronic DJs you know, from like uh, house to Jersey club and all that kind of stuff. And I remember it was like the quote unquote snow apocalypse, probably the first one. I don't remember. There was a couple variations of it, but everything was shut down. And so like Holocene canceled the show and DJ Slink was in town and d he ended up doing a party at Thug's mansion, which was like the, uh, what was that crew? The stylist cruise. It was like their house near Killingsworth. And so me and uh, I think Fountain at the time went down there 
and I remember meeting Slink, and we smoked a blunt, was just kicking it, just chill dude. Um, and that was also the first time I like connected with the homie Anthony Taylor. Like I walked up to him and like shared a blunt, and that's where our friendship started. But long story short, I was watching Slink DJ, and it just clicked in my head like, oh yeah, I can do this shit. You know, um, it was like I was seeing the things I was hearing as far as what he was doing. Absolutely. So I think self-doubt has always been a thing in my life to where now where I'm finally like even producing music right now, it's like a childhood dream, you know? And it was like, oh, you had the tools. You could have always done it. There's no time like the present, you know, what's holding you back. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I mean, yes, yeah, sometimes while I'm in spaces, I would want to curate things and, I think I was always that guy. Like, I would curate playlists and whatnot. But to actually perform um, in a sense of, like, controlling the space, um, it's definitely, like, kind of an evil mad scientist thing to it where it's, like, you have the power to keep people on a high vibration or a low vibration. And um, my goal is to have it more in a high vibration sonically. Like, where where does it, uh, where does the obsession kind of, like, kick in where you like are actively pursuing it and you're like trying to get gigs or you're either at the house trying to make mixes. I mean, after I saw Slink at Thug's Mansion, that's what it was, really. I would say a year or two after that, me, Anthony, and a couple Nicks. It was like three Nicks. It was like Nick Sisapon, Nick Wooley, um, and Nick Berg. We started Verifirm. So we had like a creative studio space. It was like off of Madison Street under the bridge. We had like an actual studio within the studio that had like music equipment. So Nick Woolley had like his some 1200s and like the damn, what was that? I think it was like the T57 mixer. So I practiced on that before I got a controller. Actually, uh, Chris Dublife used to let me borrow his old Vestax controller back in the day. So like, you know, if he DJed Thursday through Sunday, he would let me borrow the controller from like Monday to Wednesday or something. And at around that same time, uh, my friends started deep underground um mia and um medina and them and so like i was a part of the inception of that and so they pretty much was like squatting at this house um that no longer exists anymore and i would come there and i would practice there in medina's room so there was kind of like a couple places where i was like honing things in to the point where i got homies like you know snugsworth would be like yeah bro i remember when you was practicing in medina's room and <laughs> you know so there's people that have seen the process and the growth you know in person yeah i remember going to some of those deep underground events yeah seeing like fontaine perform and i was considered the dad of the situation so you know they were you know i might have been like i don't know 25 or 26 or something and they were like you know 19 20 21 and so i was the one that was just kind of like I don't know if you should do that, if, you know, like, you know, and, it got to, and what was interesting about that situation is I learned more about myself through the younger generations, which was dope. It helped me a lot with um, coming to my own self as a person and an artist. So, yeah, that was a dope experience with Deep Underground. Why do you think that was like so important to your your growth to be around younger people? Because I've experienced something similar, I feel like. I think it helped me a lot with fear of the unknown, you know? I'm a very, like, spiritual person, and I think growing up, you know, my family being from the South, there are certain things that 
culturally is ours is like black people in general and like the diaspora of black people where people think it's witchcraft or you know whatever else like that and i would say that you know that generation of folks were open to things that were more like esoteric and whatnot and you know i at one point was afraid of those things but then it was just like as i took a step back and was like i'm in their space let me observe it helped me have more faith in the younger folks you know you know people used to be like oh they don't know what they're doing and it's like they know i realize like when you come out the womb you're on a mission and usually sad to say it could be the people that care about you the most that teach you things or indoctrinate things that instill fear you know um yeah the world's a crazy place but at the same time like you know my family are the ones that were like made me fearful of like just getting out even with traveling like i went to mexico recently and they're like be careful be careful be careful and i'm just like yo i felt more safe in mexico than i do in america to be honest like yeah you know like obviously i'm not going to be stupid about things but it's just kind of like um having faith that you have purpose and that uh, until your purpose is fulfilled you know there's nothing to be afraid of right and so i i think it helped me let go, let loose, not be as uptight, you know? And the uptightness came from being raised by, you know, my grandparents, but also seeing my mom at a younger age live her life and try not to make the same mistakes she made or, you know, my father, you know? Um, I've always been observant as a kid. I don't forget a lot of things, you know? Yeah, man. I, I think it's, like, that important to me to like surround myself with younger people for a lot of those reasons you're talking about and just to like i don't know it's it's very easy i think to get caught up in the oh this generation doesn't know what they're doing and like these kids aren't making good music and i think it, a lot of times i think i think that's like a pretty lazy thing and it's just like not like really interacting with those people or like seeking out the music that they're making and actually like listening to and the same thing like you're talking about with the traveling it's like mm -hmm. yeah if you just watch the news all day it will tell you that every major city is like the most dangerous place and then you like actually go to those places or like talk to people that live in those places and they will usually tell you like different like of course there's going to be like crime in a major city it's it's a fucking i mean i think it's more like if you're an american there's a target on your back per se but then also it's like i feel like when i went to mexico things were less politicized like even with covid it's like you saw people doing things out of courtesy and respect versus that things were mandated like they would have signs saying vaccinated or not where please wear a mask type thing versus like this entitlement of oh i'm vaccinated i can do whatever i want and because you chose not to be vaccinated you have to be reprimanded or have um, some constraints even after it's known and understood that things can still get passed around whether you're vaccinated or not and so I think there's this entitlement of us in America that has been passed down through all the generations it's like they work so hard to have a seat at the table but it's like you think about it America is like a third world country it's like with privilege it's like yeah we have all this shit but when you look at other countries their infrastructure their education system is like better so as far as the the djing 
did you have initially more of an interest in doing the vinyl versus the controller or did you care did you just want to like get your hands on either of them i was so let's see trying to think when i started collecting vinyl because i think i started i might have started collecting vinyl before i was djing i can't put a date on it but let's see the first record i bought or or set of records i bought was at 360 vinyl before it closed i want to say my homie jimmy he goes by saint uh he doesn't live here anymore he collected vinyl and i think that's what got me intrigued with actually buying vinyl I used to always buy CDs and stuff like that. So I always was like um, a purveyor of having physical copies of music. Um, I used to like work all summer and use all my money buying CDs, you know. But um, initially, I was just collecting vinyl. And then when I started playing vinyl, it was like a way for me to hear my music that I collected because I don't have time to listen to it at home. So I think I was definitely DJing digitally for about a year or so before I started DJing vinyl. I think the first time I spun vinyl was with um, Timothy B at liquor store before that changed to something else. And did you find there to be like a much different learning curve to doing the vinyl versus the digital? Damn, I'm trying to go back to that moment. I can't. It's all second nature at this point. Yeah. I think um, yes and no. When I'm when I mix digitally, you know, I EQ to high mids and lows a lot. You know, I like to do a lot of like I'm known for my blends. So feel like with vinyl even if i wasn't totally beat matching i always created a transition with the high mids and lows where it still was very fluid i think in the beginning obviously there's that fear of oh i don't know what i'm doing but once you see how things work you know watching people back cue to get to the right cue point all that kind of stuff then it becomes second nature so i said it took about a month or so for me to get very comfortable with it um at that point i was doing i think every other Tuesday, I was uh, spinning with uh, Michael from Specs Records um, at Kenton Club, and that was like my so like sp- spinning vinyl was for two reasons: to listen to my records and to hang out with my homies that are like older and married with kids. So like you know, it was a good way to be like, oh well, I'll get to drink some beers, maybe have some tequila with Michael. Um, we brought guest DJs all the time, so that's how I met like you know Morning Remorse and. Derek from KMHD and all these other people, um, they pretty much were like guest DJs at something that me and Michael started together. And that grew into, you know, him booking more events at um, Kenton Club throughout the week. But uh, I think it's more so of a mental block, you know, thinking that it's, it's not doable or you're, you're worried about messing up. And to be able to do it in spaces where it wasn't me performing, but more so hanging out with homies, it was more easy to transition to vinyl. Like now when you're thinking about whether you have a vinyl set versus something that's like controller based does that feel like you're tapping into two completely different things i would say vinyl is more fun sometimes because as a dj i'm not a performer like i can be honest about that like i see different types of djs and there are people that get the crowd hype because they have a lot of energy and stuff it doesn't always equate to what you hear you know and DJing for me is very therapeutic. It was, you know, when I first started DJing, like I was going through a lot of heavy stuff. And so it really helped me just kind of like meditate. That was my way of meditation. And I think now I understand, you know, that you have to be somewhat of a performer 
but I think with DJ and vinyl, there's less downtime because in between playing records, I'm digging through the crate, you know, of actual records, and I'm you know listening through the songs to see what works, you know. And a lot of times, whether it's digital or not, I don't pre I don't pre-plan my sets a lot. Like I might create a crate right. and be like, oh, this I might start with this song or these are the first three songs. And then after that, I'm just going through the entire library. So to keep it fun and interesting on both mediums, I'm I'm making it to where I'm still seeking for music. And I'm, you know, I might plan out a whole crate one day and then realize this ain't it. Yeah. Switch it up, you know, or I'll download a bunch of new music and I haven't heard any of that shit or, you know, in its, in its entirety until I play that night. Otherwise, I'll be bored for three or four or five hours. For sure. Was there ever a time like early on where you would be uh, more like diligent or like structured uh, as far as like planning out a set instead of just throwing things in a crate? I think in general, I'm not good at planning out a lot of things all the time. I mean, I'm I'm good with quality control in a sense. Like when I see something, I can address it. But yeah, I mean, the only times I've planned out mixes is if I like do a mix and record it and to put out on soundcloud the last couple of mixes i put on soundcloud were things i recorded live and just put it out but there were you know um trying to think some of the earlier mixes that'd be a good example like um from the ashes that mix i think i did that around like that was around new year's or something a couple years ago in that sense i would plan it out like i would play through it see what I like, don't like, trim the fat, and then re-record it. Because to me, that's like an actual set that people can replay over and over again versus a live experience where I'm less concerned about if I fuck up or not. Because most of the time, people are not paying attention. And usually, I notice it, and nobody else notices. So, And is that uh, still very meditative or like tap into like what you get out of like the therapeutic nature of of the dj set i think it really depends on the on the event like uh i just did a global based day party a month or two ago i would say it was one of my best sets i've done in a long time and i realized like i do enjoy doing an hour set over you know four or five hours and i think in portland it's normalized that djs have to sit and play you know the entire night um but then when i go to places like oakland it's normal to have you know three to four djs on a bill and each of them are getting paid like 300 dollars for that hour and so you know i try to advocate for things like that of like investing more in the djs and the talent um i understand especially now you know it's hard for uh businesses to stay thriving but I truly believe if you invest in the people that, you know, whether they're bringing people into your space or they create great retention. Yeah. You know, you invest in them, they'll energetically, they'll give it back to you tenfold, you know, um, just showing appreciation for each other. But I've also humbled myself to, you know, even though I know how good I am, I still give certain situations opportunities, you know, Versus just being like, oh, I just came from here. I should get paid this. But yeah, I think it'll be important if if people aren't obligated to play for a long amount of time. Because I think it will change the culture here. Where, you know, I kill it for four or five hours for sure. But then it's just, 
it turns into a thing where like I had to work on my drinking consumption and all this type of stuff where it's like now I'm drinking to pass the time, you know, and all this type of stuff. And usually I'm not even much of a drinker anyways. Yeah. Just, you know, and I want to be able to create opportunities for other people. So, you know, I got to the point where like I do um, this thing called Groove Lounge at Hey Love. And part of it is I always have a guest DJ. So I make it less about me making money and more about the experience. Um, and so, like, it's a mental shift that I'm working on for sure. Yeah. I, I definitely, uh, I don't know, even within my, my own sets, you know, definitely notice the difference between, like, those one or two hour sets opposed to doing those three or four hours. Cause, it's yeah, fatiguing. It, it, I mean, even just, like, looking at the, if you're doing it digitally and with the laptop, like, I feel like even looking at that screen for that fourth hour right. is just, like, I don't want to look at this thing anymore. <laughs> like, I think that attributed to me having to wear glasses for sure. <laughs> like now I'm just like, oh, I see the world clearly now. Yeah. yeah. But you, you definitely notice something different in uh, what you bring though when you do have just an hour and maybe there are oh, yeah. other DJs on the on the bill. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I've always been a collaborative person. I always wanted to do... You know, like I've always wanted to come out with a music compilation. I've always wanted to. I've attempted like two times to have like an artist collective. Um, those didn't succeed more so for just personal things with people. It's like it's hard to bring a bunch of people together when, you know, not everybody's going to get along. So that's part of the pivot to DJing was me not always investing in other people and starting investing in myself. Like going back to the, the spiritual connection to the music like i get that playing live like in different spaces you're gonna you're gonna get different things out of that and like what the energy of the room is but what about when you're just kind of like creating in solitude like making a mix like does that feel like a a much different space to you i mean yeah i mean it's a totally different environment i haven't made a mix at home in a while but yeah, because it's it's you're you're preparing something for people to enjoy, whether it's in their home, in their car, or whatever, where people will actually pay more attention than like if you're out and about and they're drinking or whatever. It's more intimate. It's more on both sides. Whether it's me by myself doing it, but also people have a. It's easier for them to have a more one-on-one connection when it's put out that way. I think I got fatigued with just playing at bars all the time. You know, I know there's always jokes around about, like, you know, n- not doing requests and, you know, just talking about how privileged people are with requests and stuff. And I just think, you know, the reason I wanted to start DJing was based off the fact that, you know, when I would see, I remember seeing, like, the homie East Coast from Stylist, you know, DJing at Verified a couple times and he'll play something. I'll go up to him and ask him what song that was. Yeah. It wasn't a, can you play this? Can you play that? It's more like, oh, that's dope. What song is this? Like, you put me on to something that I, I really enjoyed, and I don't know who this is. And I just wish that the culture shifted more back to that because originally the DJ, the DJ was on the forefront, and the MCs was the hype man. And I'm okay with it, you know, switching and whatnot, but I think those roles are interchangeable at this point. And... You know, same with the the producers. A lot of the producers were DJs. That's how they started sampling records and all that kind of stuff. So all these things go hand in hand to where, you know, I think, you know, I could say specifically in Portland, uh, a lot of times the DJ situation is like, oh, you're just 
here for the background. You're here to just, you know, cater to what we want. But I had somebody come up to you once before. Actually, was a, a friend I went to high school with, and they, like, said something in the comments a long time ago. It might have been Instagram, Facebook. I don't know. It was a long time ago. And they were like, yeah, it's your job to cater to what we want to hear. And I'm like, no. I was like, you know, I think if you stick true to yourself and what you do, the right people will gravitate to what you, you provide. And that's the same thing with making music. Like, everybody complains about everything being cookie cutter. But if we go by the rubric that that person just stated, then they're doing what they're supposed to do. As an artist creating, you should just create what everybody demands. But people that are demanding shit don't even know what they truly want. Because they get tired of it, right? Ask yourself something that you wanted, right? You want it so bad, then you got it. Once it becomes easily accessible, <laughs> you don't really want it as much, right? Yeah. You need something new, right? For sure. So I think, you know, part of the art of DJing to, for me is um, giving them a sense of familiar, familiar familiarity. Goodness, that's hard to say for me. And also bringing something new to the table. I mean, you think about it, like, nothing's new under the sun like we grew up in the same era where diddy was fucking flipping old songs and pretty much leaving the songs almost similar to the original but then having a new singer or rapper or somebody on it and he just revamped it for the next generation i think part of with djing i like the I just got booked to do a birthday party in or in Oakland and they were like, what we really appreciate about you is like, you'll flip some stuff we've never heard before or some newer stuff with like some older stuff and make it fit. It's like, you know, imagine, uh, what's the word? Imagine like, um, hearing some like future based trap stuff with, you know, uh, sammy davis jr over or something <laughs> nobody would think about doing shit like that but it's been done and it's dope like you know it's like um creativity is not about originality i think just remixing things is like that is the creative process there's nothing new under the sun yeah and just finding ways to bridge the gap i guess right I exactly bridge the gap i'm glad you said that because it makes me think of like you know uh when we're talking about connecting with the younger people is it is about bridging the gap um i think sometimes people say that the kids are lost and stuff but it's like what does that have to say about you yeah like sure. if if they're not you know if they're collectively in a bad place then that says a lot about the people before you know um versus and it's like an accountability thing and i think just as a human being i think accountability has been a hard thing with connecting with people because you know that means i have to account be accountable for my own faults but it i can do that all day but other people have to be accountable for their faults too you know and it's hard when their parents weren't accountable it's like you know i grew up uh not being able to question things i was very inquisitive but questioning things was a sign of disrespect so you're pretty much conditioning somebody to go out into the world and not question any type of authority whatsoever. And it it creates a toxic um, imbalance within the person when they're trying to, to maneuver in the world. But because they're always silenced or they silence themselves because they were told it's not good to do that, you blow up. You have these moments of like 
you know, uh, what's the word? Um, instability. When everybody wants some sort of stability, now the most stable thing to do is to deflect, you know, uh, evade, you know, and I, and then I look at DJing and stuff. It's like I DJ in spaces a lot where that is people's escape. I'm like, there's nothing wrong with escaping from time to time, but when I see the same people escaping day in day out, you know, they 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 work all week to 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 just go out and do these things and just not be present. It's it took away from my joy of DJing. And then when I went to Oakland for the first time, it came back. It was like, oh my goodness, like there's people that are out here because they're more tapped in with, with their ancestry or they're more tapped in with the healing aspect of music. I mean, you even think about Atlanta and stuff. People talk about crunk music and all that type of stuff. But if you look at, um, you know, different African tribes, even native tribes, and you look at the dances and stuff they do, and then you look at what the newer generation is doing, it's not that different. And I bet you they didn't even see a video of that said tribe doing it, but something's in them that's like, oh, I naturally feel like doing this, you know? I'm not much of a dancer and stuff, but when I listen, I remember... The only DJ I know, my homie Eric Fury, who actually um, is a heavy influence on the way I DJ, um, I've, I used to listen to his mixes day in, day out, and his blends are crazy. And so the blends that I'm known for was based off of me just, like, driving in this 2000 Saturn. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? My speaker's half blown out, but I'm just bumping his shit. And um, he was the only person where I felt this... Uh, spiritual connection with everything around me where i was just moving and dancing and i'm like looking i'm looking it's like almost like astral projecting looking at myself like what the fuck am i doing (laughs) i've never felt inclined to move like that and i just realized it's because of the spaces i'm in like i'm i'm not somewhere i'm not trying to be seen you know but i realized spirits like no you need to be seen as much as i push back and i try to manage artists and do all these different things it's like no you're supposed to be on the other end of that shit. So just do it, you know? Yeah, man. I mean, those are, uh, I think those are powerful experiences. And was that like another, like another one of those instances too? Like, as far as like speaking about like tangibility of being able to like his, his style, like influencing yours and Mm -hmm. like feeling like you could do that and like having another person around you kind of, I think, I see the greatness in other people, but I mean, I forgot what friend this was, but a good friend of mine a long time ago said, you know, you see the greatness in yourself and other people. And yeah, I think, you know, I have another friend of mine that pushed me into producing music, like paid for me to learn Ableton. Like I took these courses, um, shot the champion sound. They did a good job, um, teaching the course and, all of a sudden it clicked with me and I just started creating more. And this person, I don't want to name drop him, but you know, he's, I've noticed that he was doing for me what I would do for other people, right? Like seeing the greatness in them that they have in themselves. And, but it gets to the point where it could be overbearing sometimes. Right. And I realized what it was is until you actually do that shit, you know, um, you come off as like, either as you know better or whatever it may be and you might know better right 
but people are not going to receive it well until you do it. So I told people, I told Fountain, I told other people, you should DJ because then you could, you know, play certain music out that you're making before you even drop it and see if people like it or not. You can see how they're interacting with it. And then also just being an artist in Portland, it's like you'll make more money DJing probably than trying to book hella shows and then saturating your brand as a performer. Absolutely. So, you know, and it took me DJing for people to start DJing, you know. I'm not going to name drop everybody, but it's a thing. It's like, all right, stop talking, just do it. Now it's important to, to have that around you, I think, to like – I don't know. Even people I don't know like super well or like maybe have developed relationships with now like within the city like when I see people doing the shit that they actually said they were going to do or didn't say they were going to do they're just doing it like that's fuel for the fire for mm-hmm. me like when I see Grave God like dropping a new shirt every week I'm just oh, yeah. like oh he's still doing it like that's that's nah, he's definitely somebody me, you know? that like, I feel like I feel like if 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 Tron doesn't create on a daily basis then it ain't <laughs> the world I'm like, is off i don't the think accent. he's i don't think just one day he hasn't created something right yeah yeah absolutely and uh i don't know as far as uh like things that maybe tap into something similarly for you as far as like the presence that maybe like a dj set or making music like are there a lot of things outside of music that seem to uh to hit you similarly that you like enjoy getting into or like disciplines that you've like developed over time that that you feel like is important to like either your your spirituality or like the creativity i just i just i think it's just genuine connections i'm not somebody that likes to do small talk and shit a lot so a lot of times either i'm not saying shit or you can't shut me up (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, my friends, you know, I love them to death because they make space for that. You know, I feel like I have these downloads where it's like I observe so much and I don't say much. And then when I do, it's just like and, you know, my homie's like, you should have your own podcast. You should do this or that. You should write a book. But, you know, um, I think my interest in general is just like meeting people and creating an extended family. You know, I've done that with, um, you know, Specs Records, you know, their family. I'm. I actually met Michael from Specs from a, a listening party for Fountain, and it was like a night they were closed, and I was just going through the records, and I saw like Three Six Mafia who run it on Twelve Inch, and I was just talking shit. I went to Michael and was like, you know, he's a short Jewish dude. I'm like, what you know about this record right here? He's like, I know a lot about it. I was <laughs> like, okay. I was like, I didn't realize he was from Miami at the time too, so. I was like, yo, can I buy this? He was, and I was like, I know you're closed. He's like, oh, of course. I don't mind making money when I'm closed. And so after that, we became great friends. And same with, like, Jared from Clint Street Records, um, Kate from Zilla Sake. There's so many people where I feel like I've – I like supporting others in their passions and it being a reciprocal thing. There's not – we could talk about the, the vehicles, you know, like DJing and music is a vehicle, but I think in its essence is – I want to support people, but it be in a reciprocal manner, you know, and realize that some people don't want or need said support, you know, and that's something I had to learn as I grew, you know, um, and yeah, they might have needed the support, but until they were 
acknowledge it there's no point in trying to do that um and i had to say that to myself as much as i was trying to support other people i wasn't pouring into myself as much and also i was blinding myself from other people that were trying to show support you know so i think uh tapping in spiritually through other mediums is just like connecting with self if anything brings me back to self you know um self-appreciation uh knowledge of self-worth that's what i want to do you know i think the music part and people showing appreciation of it gives me some sort of self-worth but at the same time if i'm in spaces where i don't feel like people appreciate it it does not devalue me any less it's more so this space is not my cup of tea now i continue to do it for money or i could decide not to and go other places where i feel like it's more in alignment with what centers me and as far as you uh you talked about self-doubt earlier is imposter syndrome that something that you experience often even now yeah. even though you've been doing this for a while yeah because it's always something new it's like yeah i can dj with my eyes closed right but then i started making music so there's another leap of faith where it's like as you're making it you're making this stuff you're not sure if people are going to like it or not you don't know what your sound's going to be right and i realized like even with djing it was hard i think it was hard for people to try to market me or when they tried to book me because you know i could have easily been like i'm a hip-hop dj i'm a twerk dj i'm a house dj you know <laughs> shout to aaron from hey love and he would be like yeah so what genres are you playing and i'm just like I don't know, whatever I feel like playing, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like I wanted to get to the point where people come to see me not just because of the genres I play, but just know that it's going to be a vibe. And obviously, I have the the intelligence to to pivot if something's not working. You know what I mean? And so with the music, I realized, like, yeah, like, I'm dealing with that still, but I realized, like, I'm going to drop something that has multiple genres in it so that people don't want to put me in a box. Yeah. You know, the problem is the first or second or third thing you put out, especially depending on when you get recognized for what you do, people, and I used to be, as a fan, like I look at it now, it's like a, I'm an artist now, but when I was a fan, I used to be so critical of artists. I'd be like, oh my God, like the first and second album is dope, the third one's trash. And I'm like, well, their experiences changed. You know, they probably toured playing the same type of music for two, three, four years. They wanted to make something different. They could make the same shit, but they probably won't enjoy it as much. So they're just trying to figure out how to evolve from their yeah. shit. <laughs> so I think ultimately it's like, you know, I'm okay with like having a fan base that changes. It doesn't have to be the same people all the time. You know, like some people might like the first or second album. Like I love Interpol to death. I like their first two albums. After that, it's a little hit or miss there. Yeah, for sure. Coldplay about the first three albums or so was great after that i'm like eh, you know okay. um now would i want to see their anniversary show where they play most of those early albums yes i would outside of that i probably wouldn't want to see them because they're gonna play the new album you yeah. know i definitely think that was like a big point of growth for me of just like acknowledging like that not everything is for me it wasn't mm -hmm. like made for me it's just like yeah, I like those first few Coldplay albums. I don't like the the new shit, but there's a bunch of people that do apparently. Right. You know, it works. They're still selling mad records, and and you know, and they're great performers. Yeah. And it's like you can't you can't knock somebody for they're still great at what they do. Um, 
in some cases just like yeah labels are kind of trying to make you do certain things whatever but there's certain artists i fuck with where i see that they just do what they want to do how they want to do it because they set that standard from the jump you know i think it is like a weird thing now for me to be like this is like i i wanted them to do something different it's just like what what (laughs) I like yeah I don't like, know I love Linkin Park and then their shit started sucking after Meteor and I was like <laughs> you know like it, it to me personally you know I think it just you know and and then you got to think about it like with with you know Chester's passing from like suicide or whatnot like yeah I think about it he probably didn't feel like doing the shit as much anymore and it's sad to say but it seems like you know maybe they were trying to get away from what people might have perceived as gimmicky for them as artists, but I'm like, to me, it wasn't a gimmick. That's what they really did. Right. You know, Mike Shinoda went and did a hip hop album outside of that. So it wasn't right. like they were fronting. I mean, the remix album, the reanimation album with all these dope, you know, um, indie rappers was amazing. You had Black Thought on your shit. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they did the thing with Jay Z, which was, eh. I mean, it was cool, but, you know, I think the reanimation album itself encap- en- encapsulated like, the appreciation versus appropriative it was fucking yeah it was experimental as fuck and then you like you said you have like all these people like you got the executioners Actually, I was gonna say, that's on the I fucking just, record i just dude. thought like, that shit when you said it like that was <laughs> and it's it's interesting because like Scratching, thinking yeah. back to like that time I, I don't know that like i understood what the move was like of putting that record out following like this big record that they had and like if it was just like oh we just needed more time to put the follow-up out and we decided to do this remix thing but either way like it did seem to like penetrate the culture differently and whether or not like the jay-z record is like a good collab or a bad collab it still it seemed like bad. it still seemed more, like i feel like that was more of a label thing yeah absolutely But i was saying the earlier shit was like a passion i feel like and like but also like maybe gave it like some more credibility because jay was like willing to attach his name to this thing where he actually like played shows with them and they like did some shit together it was going i think to be honest though i think when we come when we talk about credibility i think at this point jay-z's kind of seen jay-z's kind of seen as somebody that's part of the machine at this point so it's kind of like you know but it's interesting though because i fucked tough with uh with um with you know uh like we're just lincoln park i fucked tough with uh coldplay and shit and he did shit with both of them right yeah so it's just like one of those things where it's like okay like minds whatever i see you you know right um but um another interesting thing with lincoln park and we ain't got to talk too much about them but <laughs> i feel like I, park. I feel like no but i feel like they were when you think about the elements of hip-hop and shit they were really they dialed that shit in the first couple of albums or the first two albums i should say and with the re well reanimation i guess you say three um compared to their other people that were in rap or hip-hop in that time period you know what i mean you would see a certain a certain shift happen um where it was less about the elements of hip-hop and more about rap culture which to me i look at rap as pop like rap is the the pop equivalent to hip-hop where you pretty much take all the elements out and you just keep you you infiltrate you implement like um the bling bling and all this other type of stuff right and i know like 
Slick Rick had the thick chains and stuff like that before, so I'm not saying that that was totally new, but I think that there was a certain point in time where you could have been a rapper and not have a big chain, you know? There was only a few people, Big Daddy Kane, you know what I'm saying? But then that became, they said, okay, we like this, we're going to take this element, put it here, let's objectify more women, let's let's uh let's let's keep the black culture into spending their money versus like investing in their own wealth and then you know and i think with when i was listening to like lincoln park it was like oh wow like you had the graffiti you know you had the um you know the lyricism um you had the 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 appreciation you had the break the breaking aspect of it you know what i'm saying like just the different styles like i mean the executioners like you said you know what i'm saying like come on man Caliber killer, but out of the filler. Delavilla, show your brothers how you not a gorilla. Smooth talking, fully automatic weapon, Casilla. Chase thriller, break pillars, hit them with the Godzilla. Filthy stinking, standing on solid ground, and still be sinking. Submerging in the past, we still be linking. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a minute to let you know that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by North 45 Pub, located in the Alphabet District of Northwest Portland. They've got a killer selection of Belgian beers and an extensive liquor wall of over 200 bottles. It's summertime and they've got their 45th Parloma on the menu, their play on the Paloma, as well as their staple food item, the rosemary garlic fries, which are easily my favorite thing on the starters menu. That fry sauce... I don't know what it is, but it's banging. And in addition to the cocktails and the food, they've got one of the best patios in the city, tons of big screens outside to enjoy the sun and all your favorite sports. And the best part is they've also got free live music. You can catch DJs there every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Residencies from local artists including Spinach, Vanport, Sicko Side, and WWJP as well as DJs and beat makers every Sunday from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Don't miss local beat makers Love Jones and Free Tillman every second Sunday and DJ Slim Gweenie every fourth Sunday at North 45 Pub. Now let's get back to the episode. Another collaboration, though, Mad Lib and Freddie Gibbs. Two people I fuck with tough. Mad Lib is one of my favorite producers. And I remember back in the day, my homies would tell me, like, man, I don't like Freddie Gibbs. And this is, like, back when... Just the mixtapes. This is like right before, during or before he was messing with uh, Young Jeezy. And I was like, this is that dude, bro. This is that dude. And so to fast forward and see him and Mad Lib come out with two albums, I'm like, yo, there's something in the air when it comes to like things I fuck with where people just collaborate. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'll take that all day. <laughs> all day. <laughs> also... Freddie's from Gary, Indiana, and that's where my my dad is from. So okay, I, I, I like I don't know. There's some there's some every time I listen to him talk about Gary, I'm like, cool. Like I grew up going to Gary, and visiting the right. family there and shit. So I get Michael excited. Jackson. Yeah, Michael. <laughs> what it, what was uh like? Did it hit, hit a certain point at DJing where there was always this itch? Like, hey, I, I'm I want to create my own productions. I want to be able to play some of my own productions at like during sets if possible i mean they're all intertwined i think i think in the subconscious i was always yearning to do that um i think the price like the 
the price point like as an artist would go up for me especially you know it's like okay if you look at artists doing a dj set versus like if they produce their music and do a set there's not that much difference between doing a dj set and a production set besides it's their music but the price point will go up like sango for example is only you know he's not playing live instruments or whatever right but you know a homie of mine was telling me like you know when he does shows in, in california like he's getting like 30 racks you know what i'm saying that between but if it was just a straight up dj set you know the price point would probably be in a half or less than that you know so there's a thing where people put more value to somebody that's presenting themselves as an artist or like a performing artist versus just a dj you know so i think once i started to hit a ceiling with djing and being like okay like there's a point in time where people are like oh man you're doing great stuff because you're playing all the time I'm like, yeah, but I think if I was paid more, I wouldn't play as much. Right. And, you know, there could be more of an exclusivity towards what I'm doing. And I can build a relationship with a venue or whatever to where, hey, yeah, I'm going to ask you for more money, but I can probably guarantee a better turnout by doing a monthly here or a quarterly thing versus me playing all the time. And let me take time to, like, go to other cities and other countries versus, you know. I think Portland is so spoiled with dope talent and yeah, like until people leave, you know, they don't know what they have until it's gone. I mean, like, you know, people bash Portland a lot, but I'm like, yo, like Kurt Cobain used to live in Portland at one point before doing Nirvana, doing Nirvana. You know what I'm saying? You got a lot of artists that have had their feet planted in here at some point in time, you know, even like the 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 Portland to Bay Area connection is really strong, you know what I'm saying? Um, even L.A. And so, you know, I would like it to get to the point where Portland invests in their artists outside of the nonprofit organizations and things like that, because even that can get gatekeeped. But like on a sense of like, if you're an establishment and you're trying to thrive, like create actual dope relationships with these artists and don't always think about the bottom line because when you start thinking about the bottom line that's when you know your demographic shifts you see the money go up a little bit but then you also see the undesirables when it comes to people that don't care about personal space don't respect women you know women or people that identify as non-binary or whatever it's like the unknown like if people i want spaces to be more accessible i think it starts with the energy of what you're trying to do and that starts with appreciating the artists you know i think deep underground that's that's what made deep underground what it was was like creating a space for artists to incubate and hone in their talents but also have their expression in it to be reciprocated you know like just energetically where are you uh finding like the biggest challenges creatively like diving into the the production and building things myself I don't know. It always goes back to self, really. I know it's like, I don't want to sound repetitive, but it's just like, uh, sometimes I'll take a break and then go back and listen to some shit I was doing and then be like, oh shit, this shit sounds, it still sounds really great. Or, you know what I mean? Sometimes you listen to shit over and over again and then you kind of get ear fatigue and you're like, this shit don't sound as good. It's like when you lose at a video game level, like over and over and over you take yeah. like an hour or a day and then go back to it and you beat it the first time yo okay i got something um 
not trying to be a perfectionist when you're making music it's like you know there's times where i would spend so much time trying to make a kick sound right or there might be some weird white notes in the background of some like you know digital instrument i'm using and you know i don't know all the parameters and what all the knobs mean but i'm just fucking around yeah. with shit trying to make it right yeah you know pulling out the eq8 on fucking <laughs> ableton and you know and i'm like wait i spent all this time now i got ear fatigue now i'm tired now i don't feel energized to create anything new and it's like oh you know what i remember Flylo. that's my birthday twin actually also i realize a lot of people in but i know quite a few people in portland with the same birthday as me you know person bryce howe yeah, yeah yeah that's my birthday twin too okay shout out bryce um but yeah i remember flylo was talking about how like his shit sounds like crap until he sends it into somebody to mix and master it and i would think about what i really liked about his music was how dynamic the sound was where you know you're here this little ting or something in the upper left channel but then you'll hear something over here on the low end and then this over here to where like you might you know him and teebs for sure you sound like you feel like you're on mushrooms without doing mushrooms you know <laughs> yeah. and i realized that had more to do with the the engineer and the, the the person mixing your shit than the person that made the shit so he was like yeah i just make it as close like i pretty much draw out how like the foundation and then, you know, I leave it up to this person to, like, take it to the next level. Yeah. And that's what I'm working on where once I had that state of mind, I've been able to push out more shit and be like, oh, okay, now I can discern of what can be on a project potentially, what can just sit back here, you know what I'm saying? You know, um, now I'm digging for more acapellas and shit now, too, which is getting harder and harder to do now. Like, even with vinyl, sometimes they'll put out a... Usually, you'll get, like, a 12-inch record, and they'll have, like, the instrumental on vinyl. But sometimes, they just put the... They put the instrumental, but they won't put the acapella. So, you know, I know Isotope 8 or something does... Or something like that, but you don't always get a crisp, clean acapella. But I think that's the next step for me is... Um, I'm working on collaborating with homies to write to the music. I think a lot of people are disinterested in just hearing instrumentals all the time unless you're doing some lo-fi shit for studying or something you know what i mean um so yeah i've been like talking to like brown alice um i sent her a couple things my other homie uh jermaine he's not really known for singing like that but he actually got a nice voice he wants to fuck with some shit i got and there's a couple other people that i'm not going to name because i haven't sent them the shit yet though i've talked to them but there's one joint like you know it's, it's i think that's the one but yeah I think I'm gonna say it. I want to work with Danny Danger, so I. It's gonna be like a house joint. She has a very dope soulful voice, and I want to bring back like the '90s house vibe, which is really interesting because when, <laughs> when Drake and Beyonce dropped that <laughs> shit, all my homies was like, "Man, the first person I thought about was you." Like, <laughs> bro, it's time for you to drop your shit. And so you know, yeah, it's lighting a fire under my ass. But overall, you feel like you you may be more uh you're chasing feel opposed to the the perfection now yeah it's like it's like you know even even with like collaborating with people to write to it it's like oh i want it to sound really good before i send it to them but it's like even though this kick isn't hitting the way i want it to i can still send it to this person i'm just worried that they might reject it without hearing it in its totality That's of what it's supposed doubt. to sound like exactly <laughs> exactly yeah no i i mean i think that's 
it's hard to not like feel that way too of just like i don't know i think they're just gonna maybe poke holes in this and, and maybe miss the like the thing that is there mm-hmm. i had a you know i cut my hair i had locks i cut them like three months ago or so and you know this woman i met in san francisco by the way of my homie uh, bijou um shout out to bijou dj cream the woman's name was flory and she does like oracle readings and so i did one oracle reading with her in sf and then i did another one the day after i cut my hair and she told me let go of perfectionism she was like write this down look at this shit every day let go of perfectionism the self-doubt is rooted in this in the perfectionism aspect of it and i think a lot of that comes from wanting to please your parents and your family members wanting to feel adequate regardless if they ask this of you or not i'm not saying parents are like you got to be perfect but i think there's a sense of approval you want especially when you've had moments of letting them down you want to put more effort into showing the progress you're making versus learning that lesson in that moment and keep going without holding on to it so the art of letting go too so in general let going perfectionism is also letting go of like past transgressions disappointments whatever um because nobody's perfect you know i think for me i can say i genuinely have the best intentions um with all my interactions but the self-doubt the holding on to traumas and things like that doesn't always translate the best. And I think with being an artist and, you know, making music and things like that, I think sometimes when you're, when you take the money away from it and stuff, this is your way of trying to connect with people. So I think with me and DJing, like I was able to connect with people energetically without having to use fucking words. Yeah. You know, I'm gonna ask you something, Dan. What's up? (laughs) (laughs) So let's see. Cause I don't know you that well either. I mean, I know you as a like you know you've been doing Dan Kebble presents for a while. What got you into that? Man, I've just always uh, I think since the uh, since I was a kid, I was always like really drawn into uh, like commentary of some sort. I I thought I would be like a sports broadcaster. Like that was like one of my like childhood dreams, and I still like I still think about that. I was just like, oh man, that still sounds like the most fun. Um, I don't know. I think there's always been like some desire for the, for the little radio show or something. And when I found out about podcasting, I felt like that was like something I could just do. Like anybody could, that's like the, the joys of where we're at with the digital age of like anybody gets to put out music now and like anybody gets to make a podcast. So I think I like dabbled in some, some early different iterations of it. And then I don't know. I just love music. I love talking to people about their music or other people's music and i started getting involved in like the portland open mic scene here when i first moved here and i was hosting an open mic when was that uh i've been here for almost 10 years and i would say it was like maybe like seven or eight years ago i hosted an open mic downtown lots of singer songwriters came through and i think it kind of connected to me at that point like hey there's a lot of really talented people around me 
and i'd be interested to hear like what they have to say about like their experience of making music and like getting to like share stories behind the music and just like getting to share like some of their music so Mm -hmm. i don't know just always had like a pretty deep passion for music as like a musician myself and just uh just such a big fan so i just uh saw it as an opportunity to dive deeper into that and I don't know it created like my whole community like everything kind of like i didn't have this sort of like music community when i lived outside of la i wasn't like ever connected to anything like this and it just became like such a big part of my life i guess and seeing so much different music in the city and like feeling like oh i can like start putting together like my own shows with Mm. artists of all genres if i want to now and I don't know. There was something uh, really exciting about that to me. And then it just became like this fucking like discipline thing of like, can I do this every single week? Can I put a new episode out? And like, here we are seven years, like six and a half years later, 300 Damn. episodes. That's crazy. Deep. And it's like, I don't know. It's the, that manifestation shit too. Right. Of like, what if I can get this person on the podcast? Like having these bucket list guests when I first started, like even before I started talking to local people, it's like, what if I could talk to like some of my favorite musicians and like to slowly start check checking some of those people off the list and feel like other like larger artists are like within reach now is mm-hmm. like, I don't know. It's been this crazy experience that's kind of like shaped everything. And then like, not really understanding what that was doing to like my human experience of having the opportunity to like sit down with a stranger a lot of times on a weekly basis and like getting to learn about people's experiences is like just been like huge for the the growth overall i think like and the understanding of different uh circumstances and you know upbringings and how it all like shapes everything so what's your weapon of choice with music with music uh i play a little bit of guitar but it's always been like on a a songwriting basis you know like i'm not i'm not some super shredder and also like i haven't played music i'm sorry i thought about ninja turtles when you said that shit as you should super shredder as you should i don't know what type of stories he was on but he was he was a he was a beast sorry go ahead yeah (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah i haven't played music out and about for quite some time so it's uh still something i do still something i do at home you know i still write some songs but i don't know i think as someone that was always such a big fan of music and always felt like i was a better fan than a like maybe a performer or even like a songwriter myself i think djing has been like almost this perfect thing for me where i get to like celebrate all this music that i love Mm -hmm. in and get to be artistic in some way about it you know i mean you are i I think i think um one one thing i'll say about the artistic journey for me was like you know you always gotta level up and be like you know at one point i was like i can't call myself an artist because i'm not checking off these boxes right but it got to a point where i was like oh i am an artist right i am an artist i curate things whatever just paying attention to the details is art you know being a purveyor of art is being an artist like without you being a people being a purveyor of of art then artists won't even have a sense of worth within society i know i said you know 
internally should have that sense of worth. But if we're if we're creating a rubric of how society um, appreciates art, it you know the people that are purveyors of art are just as important as people that make it, right? As a DJ, it makes my day when somebody sh- truly shows appreciation or pays attention to the details. Like I've had random people come up to me that was unexpected, be like, "Oh, you know, when you did this to this, I was like, oh my god, I fuck with that." Or, dude, like your just your blends, or you know, and they'll just be like, "Oh, when you played this song, like this is so nostalgic for me." Like you know, to the point where like then I don't care about taking requests because somebody like that, if they request something, I know that they're adding to what's already happening versus because sometimes i don't think people understand that they come off as like we need you to completely do the opposite of what you're doing we don't like this even though the entire room is moving there's times where i did take the request and people wasn't vibing and now i look bad so i think you know using discernment and just like connecting with people on an energetic level to know like okay they really appreciate it let me let me let me let me um uh, add more into their experience but then on top of that it's like if you look at producers today they literally make music the way that i dj like i will take drums from this because i mean i have a four channel mixer so sometimes i'm mixing three songs you know i don't think i rarely would use four channels at the same time but like so it's like you know i got the drums from this thing i got another track that i want the vocals over but you know i can't fully zero out everything so i still got elements from over here and there so it's like you got a little bit of percussions with the vocals here and then you get another song where the percussions don't clash you know there's still open space for something else and essentially that's how motherfuckers are producing today and it's not perfection, right? Like, because you have those like little yeah. elements that are still there, but the feel is all good. Yeah, and um, and it's like uh, you know, that, I think I was in one of the blockages with producing is when I was in Oakland. Um, I ran into this one dude, one of Bijou's friends, and this dude would knock out three beats or something in an hour or two, just you know. But I realized, you know, he was like, "Yeah, bro, ain't nothing wrong with using splice and taking all these elements and this and that." Cause I was over here like trying to make everything from scratch. Like, and sometimes I do do that where, or sometimes I realize like my process is like, if I loop a sample, like I did a, I just recently made this one track and I had this Ahmad Jamal, Ahmad Jamal sample. And it was actually the, uh, was it? I love music, which I didn't realize till later on. That's what the world is yours is sample from. Oh, it was like that little, okay. it's a little part of the song that's sampled in that. Like, towards the fucking end and you wouldn't have known yeah, more beautiful moments when you discovered those things yeah so i was like yo i i at first i was like yeah i want to i want to loop that part but do like some jersey club type shit or something and then i made a completely different song and then took that loop out and then essentially i made a all original song but i started off by looping a sample to be inspired and now i took it off so I ain't got to worry about royalties and shit. You know what I mean? Like, so, I mean, I think just getting out the outside the box, like not being afraid to do things, not not worrying about how it's going to be received. Because sometimes, you know, you stop yourself before you even start. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the, that's usually like the biggest fucking, again, it goes back to like the self thing you're talking about. Usually you're the you're the biggest roadblock in like, you know, doing something. For sure. I think that's also that also helps me have compassion for others in a sense of 
I can't expect somebody to change overnight when it took me a long time. Like my entire adult life has been a road of like trying to be better, trying to do better. And there's times where you got to humble yourself and be like, damn, like I'm still, you know, there's still moments of like, you know, it's an ego thing, right? You feel like you work so hard on shit. You're not going <laughs> to fuck up. And it's like, no, like you still, you know, got to be accountable for your stuff. And then like, I just realized like, sometimes the best thing to do is plant the seed and i think as artists that's what a lot of people do i mean you look at it like andre 3000 he doesn't have to make another song in his life but sometimes for some reason that motherfucker will do a guest you know verse on something right but i think for him he's at a point where he's like you know if he's feeling something and he has to create he probably creates hella music and just doesn't put it out right but there's something that tells you to drop that, plant that seed, because some people need to see that they're not by themselves. Even if one person relates to what you're doing. Sometimes I'm on IG. My homie Anthony Taylor was like, bro, I be fucking with you, Sam, but sometimes I ain't trying to read all that shit on your story, right? <laughs> like, you know, he's like, bro, you should do a podcast. He's like, that's how I know you should do a podcast. But it's like. I don't even do it that often. It's more like sometimes I feel like I need to say something. And yeah, I know sometimes I'll get pushed back with what I'm saying. But I also get a lot of people saying thank you for saying that because I thought I was alone in this situation. I thought, you know, whether it was like during COVID and all this type of stuff, there's a lot of people that were marginalized in, in a situation that felt like they can't say anything without being ostracized, you know. Um it was like scary times. And for me, it was less about the virus, but just how people were treating each other. You know, I would tell people like, if something's holding you back from doing it, just do it because there are some other people is going to resonate with it. And, and you might save that one person from, you know, some shit, you know what I mean? Like real stuff. Like it doesn't matter how big of an artist you are or anything, you know, you might have a podcast and only 10 people listen to that shit. But somebody out of that 10 people might be like, God damn, like, I almost, you know, did the worst. Yeah. But then somebody told me about their experience and it it let me realize, like, oh, the world isn't over. I had thoughts of, you know, I, I had suicidal thoughts back in, uh, I was like 19. But it wasn't a sense of like, it wasn't like I was like, oh, I want to kill myself for real. But it was like questioning, like, what's the point of living? So... You know, that's why I said suicidal thoughts, but it's like, I remember talking to my mom about it. I was like, you know, this is, I was like deep diving into all these conspiracy theories and shit like that. And it's like, what's the point of even trying to do good in the world when everything is stacked up against you? You know? And I remember my mom just like reinstilling, having faith in something higher than me. She was like, you know, she was talking about how like, you know, when she was pregnant with me, some, I was like three girls tried to jump her or some shit when she got off the bus, right? And she was talking about how a spirit would talk to her. And that's how she believes in a higher power. She's like, by the time she got to the block from my grandma's house, something told my grandma to come outside. Something said, yo, come outside. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And, and you know, and around the same time, my mom turned around and she whooped their ass. My mom's a fighter. <laughs> I go, But it was one of those things where it was like, you know, she had headphones on and everything. So what told her? It's like, people say, you know, sixth sense, your intuition, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, Yo, like, I believe in something higher than myself, and I believe that there's a reason why things happen, and whether it's good or bad, like, I believe in multiple lifetimes, 
it really helped me lessen the blow of like losing somebody right like i've dealt with a lot of death this past year and i think part of my role is to show people like they're still here like there's no you know they are death death has been like the most powerful psychedelic i have experienced i feel like like it it, it is hit on the a similar level i mean that was my biggest fear was was dying i think when i was a kid, when i was growing up i was like i didn't want to be forgotten right like you know and my thing is whether they even remember you for a good thing you did or a bad thing you did you know i think we have to continue to be st- storytellers i think there's a like with you podcasting and other people podcasting is very important because you know, as people, as human species, we were storytellers. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't, we didn't have TV, radio and shit a certain time. It was like your ancestors bringing down yeah. the knowledge. You know what I'm saying? Like, and before it was even written text, right? And so, you know, you, you, I, you know, I feel like we put so much faith into records, you know, we're making music on a digital form platform where that shit could be lost, right? You know what I'm saying? And so there's always going to be a need for live music, in-person situations, um, having people tell their stories about, let's say, places like Deep Underground. Like, think about all the the musicians that started there that people are fans of. You know what I mean? Whether they was musicians, spoken word artists, dancers, you know what I mean? Um yeah man yeah and, uh, and and like those yeah those those are the spots where somebody got their first opportunity to do their thing like that i think about that shit so much like the people that gave me those first opportunities to do the shit that i wanted to do you know thinking about a beat happening the other day right how right. many of those artists spoke to a beat happening was the first place i ever got to perform <laughs> and now five years later here i am i'm performing again because i kept doing that shit after it Shout out to Jonas. Jonas, that's my boy. Like, Good dude. Uh, yeah, I remember DJing at Society Hotel. And that's the thing about, like, you know, starting something and passing it down. You know, me and Timothy B started DJing at Society Hotel. And then, you know, that evolved into, I mean, Carlos Roadblader is not here anymore. But, you know, Carlos and Bianca with DJ Upstairs. I forgot the name of what their party was. But it was cool to see, like, the bugs and kinks that we had to deal with was like smoothed out for the next group of people to get into it. And, you know, I hope that there's, you know, it was, it was beautiful seeing all the dope people upstairs enjoying themselves with many different backgrounds and stuff like that. But I think it's, um, all in all, you know, I I know sometimes I go in circles. I just feel like it's very important to celebrate these people because Jonas you know, he's funny. He just texted me today. I was trying to do, I do a thing called Vanport and Friends, and I wanted to do it on my birthday or near my birthday. My birthday is on October 7th, which is a Friday. And he just texted me saying, oh, that date freed up the Thursday before, the first Thursday. So, you know, you want to do it, you know? And he's worked hard, you know, for everyone I've done, you know, especially during the pandemic. You know, there was a bunch of hoops to jump through and figure out, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty. And he does a lot of work making sure that, the artists feel supported and i think that that's very important like he's a fucking gem in this motherfucker like yeah um as long as yourself and other people that have also given me opportunities um and he's so humble and modest and i just think you know we need more people like that where Absolutely. it's not about 
you know, you don't mind being in the background. You know what I'm saying? I wanted to be in the background, but I don't think that was in my cards. Um, but there's other people that do a lot of work that don't, you know, boast about it or whatever. And, um, you know, those are the type of people that should be owning spaces. And I think that's the reality is like we really need more spaces owned by people that put the culture first and give the community a chance to support them and show that it's a very lucrative business model. Agreed. Yeah, for sure, man. I mean, because that's the, that's the only way that you don't have people running shit that don't actually like understand it or participate in those spaces. For sure. I mean, it it hasn't been that long that I've been like kind of given the keys to, to book like these few spots, but like mm-hmm. I definitely know that the way that I book music has all been informed by like what I've like learned through these experiences of like doing this podcast and like who I want to like make sure is like included in those spaces or just like having the opportunity to like feed the people that you know, you know, or like give them a check. Cause right. it's like, I know that this dude or this person, like this is what they are doing with their life. Like this isn't just some, like some hobby of theirs, right. you know? exactly um but yeah i mean it's a nuanced thing i know that you know businesses businesses have to thrive and stuff too so i don't want to make it seem like all these places don't care about artists but i think um what's important is like as an artist not trying to change some place that's established to fit their means but maybe be a part of something from the ground up you know and you build the foundation off of that and it I think it will flow easier. Yeah, man. Let's end on this. What, what, as thinking back to when you first started DJing out and about and that, that party in the mansion, that, uh, like, where do you see the most growth within yourself? Like with either like as an artist or, uh, just as a human being. I'm trying not to sound redundant. (laughs) I think for me I real I know that I have all the support that I need to to do what I was manifesting as a child that it's not too late I'm not too old um and that my expectations aren't um based on the benefits of things but more so the process so it's like instead of being like i want a lot of money or i want this or that it's more so like i want the opportunity to meet a bunch of different people and to create genuine relationships i want the ability to travel um i want the ability to have a sense of security in general Cause like you say money, this and that, but like security could be resources, you know what I'm saying? Like, and I've had those things and I'm thankful. I'm thankful of a lot of establishments in Portland that, you know, will hook your boy up when I was like broke, you know, like being a DJ and an artist, you know, you didn't always. And for me it was like, you know, there was a lot of DJs that had like full-time jobs and they DJed, you know, I had made the decision to take the deeper plunge, you know, and like, yeah, I worked at Kopi, you know, coffee house and other places, but that was more so like part time for me to be tapped into the community. It was my way to see a bunch of people in the neighborhood, 
um, see my friends and things like that. It wasn't like I was making hella money. Um, and like I've been working with uh, with kids with autism since I was like 18. Um, like Brian is 19, Ethan's 19 too. I was working with Brian since he was like 15 or five years old. And so like I've had that, but even then with that, I was like starting to do that less and less hours. So I was putting more faith into the music. So with in order to do that, I had support from family, but also like different establishments, you know? Oh, you want to eat here? Cool. I got you. You want to do this and that? Like, oh, I know you get paid next week or here, put this on a tab and you can take care of it later. And so I would, you know, I feel like what I've been manifesting, I've always had. And the only, yeah, the only thing holding me back was myself, my own doubt, um, worrying about perception of others. At this point, it's like, I know what my intentions are. I know what my goals are. And I don't have to take in other people's projection that's rooted in their own insecurity, you know, because I did the same shit. I project a lot, too. So, yeah. <laughs> well, hey, we all, we do. all do that shit. So once you realize it, it's like instead of chastising somebody for projecting onto you, just realize like sometimes people projecting is a way of relating you got to discern between the two you know yeah just humble yourself check your ego like there's nothing wrong with ego but also be aware when you're tapped into that shit <laughs> when you're on your own self-righteous bullshit like just you know just like and it's it's not even just self-righteousness but it's just like usually when people are offended right it's rooted in the ego you know what i'm saying usually when somebody's hurt it's rooted in ego all of your different emotions is rooted in that your expectations are based on your ego right so it's just like you know um me working on emotional intelligence is just checking ego and tapping in like oh why do i feel this way that's tapping in with your ego i think people when they use the word ego it's a sometimes it's used in a dismissive way to dismiss somebody's feelings to dismiss their reality like, oh, you're just in your ego. And it's like, no, I mean, I mean, yes. But at the same, like, I had a friend of mine, um, Hassan, you know, he's somebody that, you know, we'll have a lot of conversations. They'll be bickering back and forth. And I got triggered one time because he mentioned my ego. I had, was talking about some grand revelation I had, and I felt really good about it. And he was like, yo, that sounds like you're talking from your ego. And then I was like, yeah, but for you to say what you said was tapped into your ego, and I just got defensive, right? But the fact that my response was in a defensive manner proved him right that I was in my ego. If I wasn't, I'd be like, "Oh, okay," and kept it going. So after like a minute or two, I'm like, "Oh shit, you're right. I get that." And so I think ultimately that's where I get is being able to process and be accountable for what I do and what I say and what I think, and not expect other people to be able to do the same the way I do it and uh, give them time and space for their own growth. Yeah, man, it's been, it's a, it's a pleasure to finally get to do this on the mics and get to like, I don't know, just learn about your, your foundation and just your thought process for stuff. Like I, I feel like for, for someone that uh, has only been like dabbling in the DJing for like the last couple of years, like I, I feel like watching you from afar, there's always like a lot to learn, like not only from like listening to anything that's on soundcloud but just like the way you operate or you know your thought process behind things is like just even what you're talking about with like showing the patience to like allow people to get to this this place you know of understanding and whatnot and how that like that took you time it's like yeah it took me a lot of time too and a lot of growth to arrive wherever i am and 
like I still need more space to like figure shit out. So to like give other people that same space and that same grace is like important, I think. And yeah, man, it's just uh, nice to nice to chop it up with you. For real, for real. And I mean, it's not the first time we talk. But it's the first time it's been in depth, and I'm glad that it happened. Yeah. And you know, it's the first time it hasn't happened like at a venue, right? In passing either like talking about business or or whatever, like in the space, you know. Yeah, you know, and I that's this this is exactly what I cherish when you talked about you know um, doing things besides the music is just these genuine connections and people that genuinely want to kind of have a better understanding of where you're coming from Absolutely. and not just to have an end to like get what they want but more so like oh i'm genuinely interested like you are a fan of people as being people not just you know being an artist for sure man well thank you again for for taking the time i'll put all the links in the episode notes so people can uh keep up with you whether it's uh around here in portland or wherever else you are uh you know finding yourself these days and we end every episode of the podcast with the guest saying the tagline for the show which is it's a program so if we could get the van port it's a program you can deliver it however you would like hold on it's a program or program or program program so i have to say program okay yeah that's your only parameter but you can deliver it however you like i was like i was like wait a minute you know is that an accent or are we okay Hey, yo, this is Vampire. Shout out to Dan Cable, and it's a program. He nailed it, everybody. That's Vampire. I'll put the links in the episode notes. And uh, that is the, the Jelly Jams, and we will catch you on the flip side, Portland or wherever you are listening from. Just want to give a big shout out to Distro Kid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Can't say thank you enough to Distro Kid for their longtime support of this thing. 
Make sure you go into the episode notes and find that DistroKid link to receive 30% off your first year of membership, making their already affordable prices even cheaper for you. So make sure you take advantage of that. You can also find the link in my link tree in my Instagram bio. Big thanks to DistroKid and the other sponsors of the show, Produce Row Cafe and North 45. Stay up, stay tuned.